The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 1. I know that you think we're going to Deuteronomy 6, and we will in a moment. But first of all, go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 has particular relevance in the life of a parent who wants their child to understand these two dimensions of living. Psalm 1 has a particular place in the Psalter. Psalm 1 was placed at the beginning for a reason. It is the introductory uh, psalm to all of the worship of God. It really defines the two paths on which anyone will travel. You know this passage well. Let me recite it again for our memory How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be Firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In a sense, all Christian parenting is in this simple passage. Trajectory, motivation, hopes, dreams. A Christian parent in his heart of heart, in her heart of hearts, wants desperately for their son or their daughter to live in that first category. The one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who understands what God has said, who meditates on God's law, who has a worldview that translates the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's expectations and regulations into living. If you love Jesus Christ and you're a parent, you want children who walk in the way of the righteous, not in the way of the wicked. The question then is begged, how do we set our children on this path, in this direction? What are the steps? How can we set our child in a way when they can stand in a world that's going literally the way of hell And to stand up against that, to go against the stream and against the flow. How can we raise men of God? How can we raise women of God? Where will the next set of church leaders come from? They will come out of Psalm 1. The question then is, how do we get this as a result? The answer to creating or not creating men of character, women of character in Psalm 1, the answer to letting go and seeing young men and young women become the wicked that are like chaff in Psalm 1 is answered in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now turn back over to 
the book that we're studying, the book of Deuteronomy. Moses' second law, his reiteration of the law, he's standing across in Moab, looking across with the children of Israel who are all 40 years old or younger, who are about to go apart. The book of Numbers, as you know, was him getting everyone lined up. You know which tribe you're in. So that when we go into the land, he says, you'll know where to go, who to live with, where the tribes will be, how God will now give the blessing of the land to the individual tribes. And this is the last staging opportunity. It's significant then as he is staging this, this sermon, this series of sermons in which Moses will say, you know the law, that's the book of Exodus. Now how do you apply and live the law? That's the book of Deuteronomy. That he takes this section and doesn't repeat what's in Exodus. He takes Deuteronomy 6 and he adds new revelation to it. But in particular, he applies what we're supposed to do with it in passing that on to the successive generations. Any of us know that the church of Jesus Christ is one generation away from heresy, one generation away from forgetfulness. It's mistaken, though, that we would look to the church to see that the succession of godliness and the succession of doctrine is responsible in the church. Oh, we are partially responsible. There are people who don't have Christian parents who come to the church as their primary and sometimes their only source of looking into the riches of the Word of God. But In Deuteronomy 6, we find out that the primary responsibility for the next generation being godly, being holy, and knowing what God expects and what God says is firmly and squarely put in the laps of parents. Deuteronomy 6 begins very interestingly with the command to obey God. But it's not just the command to obey God. There's, there's successive generations mentioned here. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you may do them and in the land where you're going to over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. How do you fear God? He says so how, right, right in the next phrase, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I'm commanding you all the days of your life so that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with blessings, milk and honey. Hear then, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Last time we looked at this passage intensely, let me remind you of the little outline that we drew from these verses just as a reminder. We looked at three ways to understand family discipleship. 
The first way was to understand the mandate, the command, the mandate of family discipleship. It's in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You, that's parents, shall teach them diligently. That's the effort that we apply to your sons and also to your daughters. The method called for here is instruction. It's teaching. Very interesting is that the word for law in the Old Testament is the word Torah, and it means the instruction. Literally, that which is to be generated in the mind of a learner, that which is to be transferred into the mind of a student. And the, the idea of teaching here carries the idea of repetition. Those of us who are, are kids in here, Understand that our parents tend to repeat themselves, don't they? Have you ever found yourself, I've heard that before. You've told me that before. I've heard that before. That is intended by God. And there's a reason that you're hearing it again, kids. And that's because you're doing it again. Correction is an ongoing process. Don't you wish that parenting were as simple as you sit your child down and you say, today I'm going to teach you what God says and tomorrow you're going to be holy and godly. And that's as as easy as it gets. The content is also given here. Scripture. You shall teach them. Now the them is the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But don't miss the fact that this is closely placed by the great Shema. Which is the ontology. The understanding of who God is. He's unique. He is one. His definition is what drives us to obey. His definition is what makes us understand why we obey. That he is the creator God the owner of all. As we said last time, remember, these people didn't have Bibles. Everything, think about this, everything they learned was verbal and transferred and transmitted through the knowledge, the godliness, the biblical acumen of the parents. Where did they learn it? Well, hopefully they learned it from their parents, but there was the teaching of the law that would happen in the what would eventually become the synagogue. The object is clear here. You teach your children. And we asked last time, do you know what your kids believe? Let me just challenge you. Go out to coffee with a high schooler. Go to, um, go to Chipotle with a junior higher. Uh, go somewhere where you can just have time to talk. And ask them questions about what's going on in the world. Ask them questions about what's going on in the church. Ask them questions about what they learned Sunday. Ask them questions about what they've learned in the children's division, in the youth division, in the college division. What do they believe? I think that if you'll just let your students, your kids talk long enough, you will find out some very encouraging things. And you will also find out some odd things that they believe. That's okay. This, as we'll see in a moment, calls for comprehensive interaction with our kids to know what they believe and to correct what they believe that's off. Secondly, we looked at the contexts of family discipleship. Not only the mandate that we should teach our kids, but the context. Verse 7 says in the middle, and you will talk of them, that's the commandments, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Basically everywhere and all the time. It's not just Thursday night at Starbucks at 7 o'clock. Don't you wish that discipleship was as easy as a meeting? It's not a meeting. You're always on. Class is always in session. 
home, school, athletics, shopping, entertainment, news, current events, everything is to be put as a part of the curriculum of teaching what does God think and what does God say about these things and how should you think about them as well. Everywhere, always. Let me say it this way. Everything, everywhere is to be seen as in the classroom of God. Everything and everywhere. On vacation, on the way to church, coming home from school, getting ready to go to work. Every moment is in the classroom of God. There is no division between the secular part of our lives and the sacred part of our lives. The God part and the rest of the part. Everything is sacred to a Christian. So the context is it's always on. And let me encourage you, especially when things happen, when people die. We, we understood that, heard that Nelson Mandela died this last week. We talked about that this morning. I was talking to my youngest son about that this week. And it was interesting how quickly we got into theological discussions. The very quick question was this, Dad, this man seemed to do a lot of good things, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Do you think he's in heaven? Well, the answer to that is not related to the good things he did, son. The answer to that is, did he believe the gospel? That's the question. Please look for any and every opportunity to talk to your kids about theology. Why? Because everything matters. Everything is related to what God thinks. Here's a, here's a thought, students, that will end all thoughts. Did you know that God has an opinion about everything? And it's way more than an opinion. He has the only truthful perspective on that issue. Our goal as parents is to teach kids so that they can understand and find and define that. And thirdly, we've talked about the reminders for family discipleship. Uh, he talks about binding them, verse 8, to, as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. Uh, and you know that Orthodox Jews uh, in Jerusalem um, and even sometimes around the world will tie little leather boxes to their wrist or to their forehead that contain sections of the law so that every time they turn their head or use their hand, it catches their attention and it's a, uh, a reminder that they're to obey. That became a superstitious kind of following uh, in, uh, um, as it progressed in Judaism, but I I don't want us to dismiss too quickly and out of hand the idea of getting physical reminders in our lives to remind us of God's word. He even goes on, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And I'm not going to take this as a legalistic uh, mandate, but I think it's a very wise thing to adorn your house with scripture and with reminders about God. Uh, to put God's word around, to put it on the bathroom mirror, on the, on the, on the um, refrigerator with a magnet. However you do things, uh, we have a chalkboard that Kim would write verses on at our house. Putting scripture in front of us so that we're always reminded about it. That's exactly what's, what's uh, being talked about here. And we are so quick to, get, uh, to deal with the superstitious nature of that and people who would think that is a legalistic standard that we forget. There's a very wise admonition here to put God's word in front of us as reminders in any and every way possible. Quick word to, your, to you who are children still living at home, and, and that's, are you teachable? Parents are called to teach their kids. Are you teachable? Now, here's the great challenge 
for kids looking at parents and the great challenge for parents looking at kids. And it's like this. I don't think, this is a dad or a mom speaking, I don't think I, I'm qualified enough to teach my kids all they need to know about Scripture. And the answer is, yes, you are, and no, you're not. Yes, you are. If you know the gospel, you know enough to teach them the gospel. Whatever you know about God, teach them about God. And the no, you're not means we need to be always learning more so that we have more to teach. It's not just relegated to pastors and teachers. This passage says, basically, the parents are the pastoral oversight in the home. But also, it comes down to students. Are you, are you easy to teach? Do you roll your eyes, either physically or in your heart, when your mom or dad says, what does God think about that? Oh, you're going to bring God into this, right? They should be bringing God into every decision. Everything you do is a reflection of what you believe about God. Can I be just graphic with you, students? Your room and its cleanliness is a reflection of your theology. You know why? If your mom says clean your room and you don't, then you're telling us what you think about authority that God has transferred from your mom or your dad to you. If you violate curfew, if you're late, you don't call. If you, if you disobey, that's all a reflection of your theology as well as if you'll say, hey, mom, hey, dad, help me understand this. Can we pray about this? Can we study the Bible about this? Every decision you make is a biblical decision. Well, that's all review. Um, I think the problem that we face, the reason I wanted to extend this out an, uh, another week in our study of Deuteronomy 6 is that uh, we have some temptations in our culture and even in our Christian culture that are, uh, are big temptations. First of all is the problem of outsourcing our parenting. You understand what outsourcing is, right? You transfer it from the home to other people. We, we sometimes call this curbology. You drop the kid off at the church curb. You leave him for an hour and a half, her for an hour and a half. You come back and hope they're more godly when you get back. They have a relationship with someone in the uh, youth ministry who's discipling them, and you're discipling them, and you think that they'll sort this out. They'll work on their dating relationships, their understanding of ethics, their, their problem with not doing their homework. We're thankful for all those external influences, parents, I hope, aren't we? Praise God. Praise God that my boys are growing up in a church with lots of people who believe the same things that Kim and I do, who can come at their heart from another angle. Hillary Clinton said it takes a village. She was wrong. It actually takes a church. And I hope that all of us understand that when we bring our kids under the the covenant community of the church, the gospel boundaries of, of what defines who we are, that we're all looking out for one another and snooping, watching, tattling, informing, and instructing one another's kids. Sometimes don't you find it the opposite, though, parents? Uh, from books I've read, not from experience, but from books I've read, Sometimes your, your son, uh, let's just say your son, for argument's sake, uh, goes over to someone's house, spends the night, and they come back, and the, the mom says, oh, what a, what a delight he is. He did this, he did that, and you think, I wish he did that at home. It's just from books I've read. 
from the Swastons. When my kids say over there. <laughs> Problem of outsourcing parenting. You can't outsource parenting. You, you, you can't. It's not to be given to someone else. We praise God for those extra influences, but we are called by God to give an account for what we're teaching our kids. That's formal and that's informal. Formal teaching, read a book, study a passage, talk about God. It's also informal where we just respond as a, 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 a biblical input into whatever's going on in their lives. Problem of outsourcing. There's also the problem of just ignoring it. Just thinking, well, if I don't do anything and they're around the church long enough, eventually they'll get it. Please don't submit to those. There are some critical areas that I think we're called to teach our children. Let me just give you four. There's certainly more than these. But four categories that are specifically uh, identified in the scripture. We need to be careful to teach our kids. These are not one-time lessons. They come up over and over and over. And those of you who are students, please listen to these categories and look to your parents regarding instruction from God's word on these issues. Our first category is submission to authority. This is so important. Submission to authority is the first lesson of every child-parent relationship, isn't it? And it usually comes from understanding the term, no. I am going to tell you what to do, and if you don't, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to correct you, I'm going to discipline you. Submission to authority is the first foundation of a parent-child relationship. And listen, it's the final expression of the gospel. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That implies submission to a head, submission to a master. If kids will learn submission to authority when they're young, understanding submission in the gospel is an easier category to jump. Doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Doesn't guarantee anything. But it does teach them Submission, and that's submission to all authorities. You, you submit to your teachers, you submit to your coaches, you submit to a referee even when he's wrong, and they're usually wrong when it goes against you, right? Submission to authority. Can you imagine if no one submitted to authority? I mean, there are basic points of submission to authority without which our society would instantly collapse. Can you imagine if people thought that red lights were just suggestions? I'm not gonna submit to that authority. Uh, we have several right uh, within uh, uh, visual of our church. If you go out to Mission Road, I don't. I don't believe I should submit to Prairie Village. So I am going to skip that red light. That red light says they tell me to stop. Huh? They're not going to be the authority in my life. I'm going to plow right through there. Well, that's not wise. Submission to authority, which means parents that we are not on the same level with our children. What's the Mistake that so many parents make. They, they parent by suggestion. Well, maybe you can do that when they're in college and maybe in the upper years of high school where you're teaching them to think. But you don't suggest whether a child should eat their vegetables when they're, when they're two, right? I, I, I have to tell you the story. I am likely to have a conversation about it later, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We had a discussion at our table, uh, our dinner table, um, a few years ago, and um, we had some broccoli. I like broccoli. 
it's yummy. I would try to teach the kids to eat broccoli by saying, you're a dinosaur and this is a tree. Just chomp it down. And that was cool And then until they figured that broccoli had taste. And that was a different tact at that point. Boys were eating broccoli, and this was over a course of years. And finally, one of the boys said, Mom, I have noticed that you tell us to eat broccoli. And yet, there is no broccoli on your plate. <laughs> to which, her, in her great wisdom, she said, I know, but when I was a kid and my parents told me to eat broccoli, I had to then. And when you're a parent, you can say no then. But right now, eat your broccoli. That's a little thing, but it's submission and authority. There's nothing wrong with a child saying why. There is something wrong with a child demanding why. Listen, you need to be in by 10 o'clock. Why? Because I think it's wise, because there's, there's people, uh, uh, it's a late night, and there, there may be drunks on the road, it may be this, that, and the other. You can, whatever reason you want to get. But that's different than demanding why. Children should be able to appeal to their parents. Help me understand, why can't I do that? And if everything's done in a godly way and answers are given and provided, it's great. Sometimes our kids have appealed to us and we've changed. Well, you know what? You're, you're right. This is something that we, we can't allow you to do. It's when the attitude of unsubmissiveness rises and now you're pushing back and saying, I'm equal with you. You're not my authority. You're my friend and my buddy and I have an equal say in my life as you do. That's a problem. A second category is to the trustfulness, excuse me, the truthfulness and authority of the Bible, of Scripture. And this should start from day one. If, um, if you raise teens, you'll know that every teen, or even sooner, and certainly in college, comes to the point when they ask the hard question, is this really true? This is a lot of supernatural things. This, the things that happen in the Bible are outside of scientific experience. Is this really true? It's a good question to ask. Our boys are in public school, as you all know. This isn't the time to talk about the, the merits of public, private, or homeschooling. But it has provided us amazing opportunities when they have been given radically anti-biblical thoughts to come home and say, well, let's ask if that's true. What does the Bible say and what does science say? Now, the Bible has stood the test of time and the Bible has stood the test of being proven to be a divine document and yet that scientific proposition is just a few hundred years old or less. Let's test it. Do we believe this book? Now listen, we can teach bibliology all we want in, uh, in our homes, but you know what the great lesson of bibliology is to our kids? Do we believe it? Because we can tell them to believe it all we want, but if it doesn't show up in our lives, it's not going to translate. In fact, worse, we'll be counted as hypocrites. Thirdly, the gospel and its opponents. The gospel and its opponents. It's not enough just to say that the gospel is true, go get him, tiger. They need to know that the, that the enemy roars about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. That there's a worldview that's setting its mind against all 
Christian thinking that we in 2 Corinthians are putting up uh, the gospel against speculations, against the human worldview. That the gospel is, as we've said over and over, facts that must be believed about Jesus. Theology that must be understood about Jesus and his death and resurrection. And response, which is repentance. But they also need to know that there are opponents to the gospel. Uh, Opponents to the gospel are are prolific, but they primarily come in one major attack. attack. In fact, Joseph, you and I were talking about this this morning, that the gospel is primarily attacked not on the historicity of it. The, The intellectuals might do that. The gospel is typically attacked because of the morality of it. Meaning, we live in a certain way, do certain things, and don't do certain things because of our love and affection for Jesus Christ. By living that way, that is an instantaneous indictment on the world around us that doesn't live that way. And the opponents of our moral standards will always attack us and our Savior. Listen. They didn't like Jesus. You think they're going to like us? They crucified him. You think they're going to honor us as man and woman of the year? So developing a worldview of the gospel is meaning developing a worldview of suffering. Developing a worldview of you're not going to be accepted as a hero. You're going to be accepted as a stranger. What does Peter say? And an alien. Also to know that opponents come from without and within the church. there's there's just no easy way to say what I'm about to say. I have experienced some small levels of persecution in my Christian experience. 99% of it has come from within the church, from people who say that they love the Savior. So we need to teach kids about the gospel and about its opponents and to have a theology for a bad response to the gospel and a theology for a great response to the gospel, that someone could hear it and learn it and believe it and become a Christian. A fourth category, and this is the, this is the scary one. Are you ready? Fourth category is wisdom principles when there is no book, chapter, and verse. Wisdom principles, biblical principles of wisdom when there's no book, chapter, verse. There's no verse to point to. You say, what do you mean by that? Um, do you believe that, that finding, dating, and marrying a spouse is a biblical issue? I hope yes, right? Which book, chapter, and verse do you go to for that? And the answer is a lot of them. But there is no verse that says, marry her, unless you're, um, unless you're Samson. Remember what Samson said? He finds the Philistine woman. He goes in and tells his parents, go get her for me. That was the way he got his wife. It's not exactly how you're supposed to approach it. There are many decisions that need to be made from the biblical perspective of wisdom. That means you understand what the wisest thing to do in a situation is when there's no exact book, chapter, and verse for that. Now, book, chapter, and verse, biblical references, inform those decisions. That's why we need the whole counsel of God but they're not always in a book, chapter, verse. Should I buy this car, Dad? It's not in Ezekiel. I checked Amos. It doesn't talk about Jeeps. Should I buy this car? There are wisdom principles. 
that must be applied. In other words, the Bible informs areas of our decision that we make that are godly and biblically informed, but, but they don't have an exact reference to them. And that's usually the, the, uh, the decision between, does this glorify God better than other alternatives? I uh, was performing a wedding ceremony yesterday and uh, was encouraging the couple and saying in part of my, my message that a Christian wedding, and, and, and the reason a Christian decides to marry someone is one simple, basic, overriding issue, and it's this. The couple comes to believe, has a conviction, that they can glorify God better with this person than any other person, and better with this person than staying single. But the issue is, does this glorify God? We'll do another series maybe sometime on on, on decision-making. But there are some decisions that, that require biblical wisdom that don't exactly have a verse attached to them, which means you need a lot of verses informing your mind before you get to that decision. All of this takes enormous time and enormous effort. And it's okay, Mom, and it's okay, Dad, to say, I don't know. I'll find out. And I won't stay in the I don't know category, but I don't know the answer to that. Let's pray about that. Let's talk to an elder, pastor, our friends. Let's, let's get some outside counsel on this. I don't know. I don't know is a good answer because it demonstrates our humility. But staying in I don't know is not a good category in which to remain. Now, I want to give you a quick one more list. This is, a, this is list night. Um, of lies that parents believe in their instruction. Lies that parents convince themselves. We talked about this a few years ago, a couple years back, but I've changed it a bit. Lies that parents believe about parenting. This is absolute application of Deuteronomy 6. First of all, lie number one is this. The goal of parenting is compliance. If I just teach you and you obey, you'll comply and that's it. You ever heard of, I'm standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside? Compliance is not the only goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is teaching our kids how to glorify God with their lives. And we're looking at our faithfulness to that issue, not the results. Sometimes the results don't always show up now or immediately. But we need to be faithful to the task, nonetheless. A second lie we believe that instruction will correct is this, that kids are basically good. Kids are basically good. Um, this is usually a myth that you believe until they're two. And it's quickly unearthed. Kids are not basically good. Jeremiah 17, 9 teaches us that, that the heart is desperately sinful and wicked and no one can know it. The problem with our kids is sin. How many times have we, have we gone over it? If the problem isn't sin, then the solution will never be the gospel. Our children didn't come morally innocent, did they? I, I know a parenting curriculum that teaches that, that Kids are morally innocent, therefore you should isolate and insulate them from the world so that they stay morally innocent. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. Thirdly, a lie that, that we believe in our teaching. The Bible is insufficient for raising kids. 
We believe that the Bible is insufficient for raising kids. It's a lie. We need psychology. We need how-to books. No, the Bible is sufficient. People were doing this and raising godly kids long before you and I came, and all they had was the Bible. It is is sufficient. Fourth, we've talked about this. A fourth lie is that the church is to be the main spiritual guide, is to provide the primary spiritual guidance. I praise God for the church. I want my boys raised in the church. I'm glad for that influence. But that should only supplement what a parent is doing, knowing that some kids come to Christ, their parents aren't believers, and the church is the main guide. But for those of us who are here tonight who know and love Christ, the main source should be us. And the church should be an auxiliary to that. Fifth, that corporal, physical punishment is wrong and ineffective. We don't have the time to talk about this right now. Uh, maybe we should do a, a whole study on um, what the Bible teaches about spanking, about uh, corporeal, uh, corporal punishment, physical punishment. And it's very clear on that. If you spoil the child, it is a result of withholding the rod. Not an iron rod, not rebar. Something that stings but doesn't injure. Uh, I remember that uh, one situation with one of our sons where um, he, uh, in the middle of uh, getting some spanking, uh, said, you're going to kill me. And uh, uh, we took him to the passage in Proverbs that says, though you spank him, you will not, he will not die. <laughs> and his response was, that is in the Bible? <laughs> Underneath that, some people believe that if it doesn't work, you should stop. Don't give up. Don't give up. Number six, lie that we believe that affects our teaching. Insulation and isolation from the world is possible. Insulation and isolation from the world is possible. It's not possible, as we said, the problem is in here, not out there. We can't isolate them from the world. They are the world. The devil doesn't stop at a Christian's door and say, oh, I can't go in there. You will never isolate your child from the world because the world is bound up in their heart. And that doesn't mean we should expose them uh, to things unnecessarily, but to understand that the problem is in their heart and that has to be corrected by the gospel. Number seven, that adolescence is a real state. Uh, I've written a fair amount on this, but just let me say for now, uh, adolescence is a myth. It doesn't exist. There's no biblical term for adolescence. You're either a child or an adult. Now, we've created this state called adolescence where, you know, from about 12 to 18, you're not really a child, not yet an adult, and what do you do with the person? Let me just tell you, they are adults. They're just young adults. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up 
to the then known king of the world and said, we will honor God and not you. We will honor Leviticus 11 and not your, your dietary laws. We will die before you make us eat what we're not supposed to eat. We will die and be put in a fiery furnace before we bow the knee to an idol. You understand, that was, they were junior hires at that time. Junior hires. Don't give up and say, well, adolescence is a state. and they're, gonna, they're just nutty and crazy during that time. Maybe when they stop being crazy, we'll teach them the Bible. Number eight, that marriage is inconsequential to parenting. Wow, this is a lie it's so easily believed, that your marriage doesn't have anything to do with your parenting. Our marriage has everything to do with our parenting. The primary relationship in the home is not the father-child, the mother-child. The primary relationship in the home is the husband and wife. And the healthiest thing you can give your kids is loving your wife, husbands, loving your husband's wives. Make them uncomfortable with affection that you give your spouse. Make them go, stop, cut it out. That's a good thing. They are learning how to be husbands and wives from you. Make them see that you care, that you pray together, you cry together, you weep together, you have joy together. Let them see that that relationship is something that they want to emulate, that they want to replicate someday because of how you love your spouse and how that represents the gospel. Number nine. These are all worthy of a whole sermon. The ninth lie that children are unaware of their parents' examples. The children are unaware of their parents' examples. Let me just give you a quick insight. Some of you are way further down the road in parenting than I am, but let me tell you where this showed up the loudest for me in the last few years, and that is when you're teaching a 15-year-old how to drive. Because they, they instantly become experts on your driving, don't they? Are you going the speed limit? No. Dad, you didn't stop fully. You didn't make a full stop before you turned around and red. I was testing you. That's just a silly example, but on the bigger examples... Come on, do you have a different standard of watching things when your kids are around and when they're not? They know. What's your view of church? What's your view of entertainment? Your view of morality? Your view of language? Your view of criticism? Your view of receiving criticism? Be aware that your children are aware of your example. Come on, parents, weren't we aware of our parents? Absolutely. There's no substitute for time with our children. And we need to give quantity of time, not just quality. And that quantity will allow our example to shine. And when we blow it, we need to ask for forgiveness. Do you, will you regularly ask your children for forgiveness when you sinned with them or against them? And number 10, 
another lie that it's too late to start being biblical. It's never too late. It's never too late. We're called to do what's right. God will take care of the results. All of these flow out of the instruction in Deuteronomy 6. Teach your children. Be involved in your kids' spiritual development. It's very clear. Don't sublease. Don't delegate parenting to anybody. And you know what happens? Oh, they'll, they'll grow up and they'll get married. Two will become one flesh, leave the father and mother. But you and I both know that that parenting really never, ever ends. It just changes. Hopefully someday you'll be able to address your daughter as your sister in the Lord and your son as your brother in the Lord. And everything we do now when they're younger builds toward that great opportunity. If, and I have to say this, if you're more mature, if you're older, if your kids are gone out of the house, and it may be that they may not be walking with the Lord, you're still not done. You believe that God hears prayer? Do you believe that wisdom still reigns Conversations you can have that can come back to the fact that God is alive, that Jesus is real, that the Bible has authority. All of those things still come into play. Don't, please, don't ever, ever give up. I'm a parent, and I'm not a particularly good one. Just ask my sons. I'm not an expert. I am learning every day how to parent. One of the primary ways, places I learn is from watching my wife, frankly. Parenting involves a sinner trying to help another sinner become godly. Christian parenting does. Which means the sanctification process is always in play in everything we do. And we should, as a church, be leaning on, caring for, Encouraging, admonishing, and correcting the direction of our parenting. So let me ask you one one last couplet of questions. Are we willing as a church, as parents, to open ourselves up to the insights of other parents regarding our parenting and our children? And are we willing to go to somebody and say, hey, I've noticed this. How can I pray for you? Have you thought about this? Or are we just isolationists in and of ourselves where you know, we're going to take care of ourselves and, and we're not going to certainly say anything to anyone else. They might think I'm judging them. Let me just tell you from mine and Kim's perspective, you can have at us, please. If you see us doing anything that we could do better, correct Please come. Let's all of us commit to one another that we want to be a church helping one another be better families and better parents. Father, none of us do this well or right according to your perfect standard, but we all do it amazingly well according to your gracious standard because your grace is real, your mercy is real, and you give 
such kind responses to our knuckleheadedness. Show us areas in which we can improve. Show us areas in which we can deepen our parenting so that we can teach the next generation not just to be like us, Father, but to pursue you like we're trying. No example is perfect except Jesus. So cause us to look to him, the author and perfecter of faith. Correct us, admonish us, encourage us, and establish our church as a group of parents who want desperately to understand you and your word and transfer that to our children. For your glory we pray this, and for our good. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.